So have you ever had uh, somebody ask you a question, a great question, that was so good that it actually caused you to kind of stop in your tracks and it caught you totally off guard and you weren't exactly sure how to answer? Uh, I've had uh, many people in my life who've asked me those kinds of questions. I like really good questions typically and I've had uh, mentors of mine, I've had uh, with my young kids growing up, they've asked me lots of questions that have caused me to pause and kind of step back and uh, even our staff here, uh, oftentimes I get asked great questions. But, but the one, as I was thinking about this uh, throughout this week, the one that is kind of seared in my mind that I'll never forget was actually a great question that was asked uh, by uh, Lisa, now my wife, uh, before she was actually my wife. And that was over 30 years ago. And I actually can't remember if we were dating or what the deal was, but we were on some kind of date uh, early on. And I remember uh, very vividly, I was uh, leaning over to kiss her, I was making my move, and she literally put her hand on my chest and stopped me and asked this question. She said, what are your intentions? <laughs> and I thought, are you kidding me? Like, what are my intentions? I just want to kiss you. And I discovered very quickly that she was not only speaking the short term, she was actually speaking long term and was asking me, like, look, where is this relationship going, and what are your long-term intentions? And, uh, I mean, it's a great question. I hated it at the moment. But, um, uh, and I don't have a clue what I actually answered uh, to that question. But now that we've been married over 30 years, I'm sure I came up with a really good answer to that question. Um, and we did uh, quite well. Jesus was a person who asked great questions. Jesus was somebody who asked questions who stopped people in their tracks that were very personal, very pointed, and caused people to sit up and take notice and at times be very uncomfortable and to have questions of introspection and to think deeply about things that really mattered. One of the places where we see that is in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 20, and I'd encourage you to uh, turn there. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is one of the four Gospels right at the beginning of the New Testament or close to the beginning of the New Testament. So I'd encourage you to turn there in your physical Bibles or on an app or whatever device that you use. But in Luke 9, verse 18 to 20, uh, it says this. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And in many ways, Jesus began with kind of this softball question. He, he said to his disciples, you know, we've been doing ministry for a while together. You've been interacting with people. You've been there in the crowds with people. What is it that you're hearing? Give me some feedback. What is it that people are actually saying about me? Who is it that people are saying that I am? And then they give a few answers that are, you know, kind of easy to give because this is what other people are saying. But then he turns the question very much on them and asks them pointedly. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I think that great questions have changed the course of history. As you look at world events, as you look at nations that rise and fall, I think oftentimes it comes because of great questions that people are asking. And in my life, I have seen that actually great leaders are people who can ask really good questions. Good leaders aren't the people who have all the answers and who always answer everything, but leaders are people who actually 
take time to ask questions of people and then actually really listen, and then dig further into that and actually ask more questions to understand uh, more fully and then to listen well again. There's really an art to asking good questions, and it's actually something that any, any one of us can learn. We can all become really good at, or at least better at asking great questions, and it starts by just simply thinking and talking less about ourselves. And actually, starting to think about other people and what matters to them. Because you see, the questions that we ask reveal what we care about. And so as we think about other people and we think about what they might care about and we start asking questions about things that they might care about, they're actually great questions. And John Maxwell, many years ago, I remember hearing him say this and it has always stuck with me where he said, people often wonder, how do you become a charismatic person? And he says, it's actually really simple. All you do to become a more charismatic person is you actually just pay attention to other people and you ask questions of them. Because I guarantee you that if you're with people who are asking questions of you and who actually seem to care about things that you care about, you'll want to be with them more. And that's sort of the definition of a charismatic person. It's somebody that, boy, I really want to hang out with you more. I want to spend more time with you. And so if we can become people who ask great questions and who listen well, it reveals the things that we care about and It shows that we actually care about other people. And so great questions matter. My guess is is that each one of you, uh, in one form or another, that we come here today and that we likely have a whole number of questions. We would likely have questions about who God is, questions about faith, questions about the church, questions about things that are going on in our lives. How do we understand these things in the context of faith? It's probably why you're here or at least for a lot of you. And if not, if you don't have a lot of questions, my encouragement to you and to each one of us is that maybe we actually have to spend more time asking some better questions. Because questions matter. Because again, they they reveal what we care about. And so, faith isn't about having all the answers. And sometimes we think that that's what it is. But faith is actually being okay with the questions that remain unanswered. But actually having a really solid foundation and answer for the few questions that really matter. And the good news for you here today is that as we look at the authors of Scripture and the people who have written this wonderful, rich text of these people who walked with Jesus, and as we read the words of Jesus and we see His life and His story, we, we can understand and we can come to Scripture and know that there are answers there that are unmistakable and we have all that we need to have a solid faith that is real and secure. But it doesn't mean that all of our questions are necessarily answered. So my encouragement to you and to each one of us as we go into this fall is I want to encourage you to be honest with your questions. And in fact, I'd encourage you to dig deeper into deep questions. And so this this fall, we want to step into the series, as Maureen mentioned, called Follow Me. And it is a series that we have done before, and as a preaching team, as we were praying and discerning and thinking about how we begin the fall, we, we sense that we need to just return to this theme of some of these really important aspects of discipleship, as that's what this series is about. And at the core of discipleship is this invitation of Jesus to follow Him. Discipleship, first and foremost, is just following the Master. It's walking in His steps. And so it's this invitation to follow me. Now, many of you know really well and better than me what it means to follow somebody in social media, um, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or, or something like that. I don't do that well. 
on social media, and some of you know that. I remember the first time years ago when I signed up for some of those things, and I started to panic when all of a sudden I got these invitations of people to be my friend and to follow me, and I was like, no, make it stop. And I, I didn't know how to shut it off, and so I ignored uh, most of those. I'm sorry. Um, and you don't really want to follow me on any of those things because it won't be very interesting. And I'm also the guy who signed up accidentally for two Facebook accounts and then didn't know how to unregister them. And so then I started getting these recommended friend things that I should do. Be, and that I, It was recommended that I actually be friends to this Bruce Enns guy because we had a lot of common friends. That was weird. And I didn't know what to do with that, so I just ignored it. Um, but follow me is an invitation to living a life of daily response to Jesus. And that's a following that matters, and it's a following of a person, not a set of rules or not a religion, but it's following a person as we become a disciple of Jesus and as we disciple others. And so whether you're new to the church or a long-timer in the church, Discipleship is probably something that you've heard a fair bit about, or at least you've heard some about, but oftentimes we don't really know what it is. We don't really know how it is to understand it, and maybe we have a lot of questions about what it actually is. And so what we want to do in the weeks ahead is we want to get more of a sense of some helpful handles of how do we think about discipleship. But before we get into some of the specifics of each of these, what we sometimes call steps or aspects of discipleship, I want us today to simply look at who is it that we are following. That we need to understand who this Jesus is. And that by understanding who Jesus is, what you might call theology, of understanding who God is and His place in the world and in our lives. As we understand more of who Jesus is more deeply, it is very foundational to our discipleship. It's critical in our discipleship. And it's probably the most important question. It's this great question that Jesus asked His disciples in Luke 9, And it's a great question that he asks every single one of us. is who do you say that I am? So this is foundational to our discipleship. Luke is one who walked with Jesus and he was one of those early disciples who wrote things down and he was very meticulous how he wrote things down and he wrote the accounts of his times with Jesus and his teachings. And he, in previous chapters, and I will look at just a few verses, he walks through and he tracks through some of these stories and this history of people who ask the same question. Who is this Jesus? I don't understand who this is. People were bewildered. People were wondering. They didn't understand. It's like they had this mystery, this prized possession right in front of them, this treasure that, that was right with them and right there and they couldn't see or understand who he really was. I don't know if some of you uh, saw on the news this last week, there was the story of the queen who uh, interacted with some tourists who didn't recognize her. Anybody else read that story? Okay, again, nobody reads the news, I guess. Um, but earlier this week, apparently, uh, she was walking at Balmoral Castle, and that is apparently in Scotland. It's one of her favorite places to go and relax and retreat. And apparently it has massive grounds on it that you can walk around. And she was out walking uh, with uh, one of her uh, Secret Service agents, Richard Griffin, I think his name is. And they were walking together, her and this man, and they were walking through. And she was walking around the grounds in the way that she often does in that setting, very dressed down, very, wearing very ordinary clothes and wearing a headscarf. And as she was walking, apparently other people can walk on these grounds, and she came across this small group of tourists who started to interact with her, and they didn't recognize her. And they asked her, they said, oh, do you live around here? And have you ever 
met the queen or anyone of a head of state. And she kind of smiled and she goes, yeah, I, I live around here. I live close by. And she says, I haven't met the queen, but he has. And I thought, what a wonderful example of just missing what is right in front of you. And I, I would have loved to have been there when those people read the paper the next day or looked online or whatever they did and they saw this wonderful story, which actually Richard Griffin, the bodyguard, actually told to the press afterwards. Um, fascinating. Sometimes we can miss what is right in front of us. And throughout the book of Luke, that it shows people who are trying to understand who is this that is right in front of us? Who is this that we are interacting that is Jesus, but we don't understand who he is. So if you look at Luke 4, verse 22, it is when Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, and he's speaking for the first time in the synagogue, and he is quoting from Isaiah 61, and it's a text that these learned scholars and teachers of the law would have understood very well, and it talks about this prophetic word of somebody who, of God, who binds up the brokenhearted, and it goes on and on in, in Isaiah 61. And then Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of that. And these people are kind of staggered and they're wondering uh, what is going on. And then it says in Luke 4.22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Because they're saying, like, we, we watched him grow up. Like, we know his family. We know his parents. Like, who, who is this? I mean, who is he claiming to be? And so they're starting to ask these questions. Or if you look at Luke 7, verse 16, where Jesus has just raised a dead son of a widow and has brought him back to life. And it says, They were all filled with awe and praised God. And they said, A great prophet has appeared among us, they, they said. God has come to help His people. And so it says how they saw Him as this great prophet and they, they wondered, okay, who is this person? I mean, God in some way is among us. And then in Luke 8.25, right after he calms the storms and he had been in the boat with the disciples and they were fearful for their lives and Jesus says to them, where is your faith? He asked the disciples. And in fear and amazement, they asked one another, I'm sure in hushed tones in the bottom of the boat, like, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water that they obey him as Jesus calmed the storm. Or after more miracles and more ministry, we read in Luke 9, 7 and 9, the questions that are being asked, even by heads of state. Like, is this John the Baptist? Is this Elijah? Is this some of the other prophets? And it says how Herod said, I beheaded John, so who then is this that I hear such things about? And even Herod wanted to meet him and understand him more deeply. And so, it doesn't matter whether you are the religious rulers, as you look back, the religious rulers in the synagogue and the teachers of the law, or whether it's the average ordinary citizens on the street, or whether it was the disciples themselves interacting with Jesus, or whether it was heads of state. All of these people, as we read about in Scripture, they're, under, they're trying to understand and, and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? And that's some of the background that we come to as we see this text where Jesus then asks these disciples this most important question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter gets it right. And Peter is starting to see and he's starting to understand this incredible Jesus and who He is and all that He represents. And Peter's answer is so simple and powerful and it changes everything. And he simply says, you are God's Messiah. The Christ. And in those few words and in that 
brief declaration that Peter gives, it gives this pronouncement of understanding and depth that is coming to Peter and these disciples that changes everything. And Jesus then starts to shift and He starts to teach them about discipleship differently. And if you continue to read the text and go on in that text, you'll see that Jesus then starts to talk about suffering. Because He's realizing that, okay, you're starting to get it. But it's not that this is now an easy path to glory, but that you are now being called to follow Me. And if you want to follow Me, it will not always be easy. And so He starts to unpack a little bit more of what will come. And it opens up this door for a full discussion of what discipleship entails. And He talks about the fact that the road won't be easy. It will involve pain and disappointment and suffering. But it will be worth it far more than you'll ever realize. And Jesus goes on and says, whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Me. And you know what? The only way that you would consider this and Jesus knew the only way that these disciples would even consider following Him into this suffering is if they truly understood and believed who He said He was. Because if you don't believe that this is the Son of God, that this is the Messiah, that this is the One that we've been waiting for, they're going to fall away when things get hard. They're not going to stick with it. The same is very true for us. It's only once we truly know and understand and believe and embrace and put the weight of our hopes and our dreams and all that we trust in on Jesus Christ and who He is that we can actually follow. He's so much more than a prophet, so much more than Elijah, so much more than John the Baptist, so much more than the angels, so much more than a good moral teacher. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ones that the prophets have spoken of and the one that they had been waiting for. And now, they hadn't been able to see who He was even though He was right in front of them, but now they are starting to understand. And Peter started to see and to truly believe. And when Matthew, the other disciple, Matthew who also records different events in the Gospel of Matthew, when he writes about this account, he, he, he writes this incident and he says that when Peter declares this truth of who Jesus is, Jesus responds by saying, upon this rock I will build my church. In other words, upon this confession and those like Peter who see it and trust it and, and put their weight on it, the church will be built. Because you see, to be a Christian is to understand and acknowledge this unique identity and the role of Jesus. And just as Paul said in another place in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, he says, for no, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so I want us in this series, to start with this foundational question of who is Jesus? Who do we say that He is? Because unless we understand that, unless we get that, we will not be willing to follow. So I want us to turn for a few minutes to the book of Hebrews, and I'd encourage you to, to turn there. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, this is close to the very end of the Bible, and Hebrews is a wonderful text, a rich text that helps us understand powerfully who Jesus is. The goal of Hebrews, one of the goals of Hebrews is to show the superiority of these final realities that we see in the New Covenant over and above the temporary ones in the Old Covenant. So Hebrews is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and the new life that we have in Jesus continuously. And the goal of Hebrews is to show who this Jesus is, that He is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, fully human and fully God, the final sacrifice, the ultimate high priest, and on and on. 
And the audience of, of Hebrews that's being written to here are disciples of Jesus that had a significant Jewish background. But they're holding back. And they're not going kind of all out for trusting and following Jesus. And they're losing courage and they're losing faith and they're struggling with their doubts and they have big questions. Kind of like a lot of us. And they're shrinking back toward religion rather than trusting and following Jesus. And you know what? Religion is always an easier path than simply trusting and following Jesus. But then we read in Hebrews 1, verses 1-3, to where the author starts to unpack who this Jesus is. And just, just listen to these words. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days He was spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. And so the author is saying that, you know, we can see the ways that God has spoken in the past, but now that has changed. Now God is speaking in a multidimensional way. It's coming in a very different kind of form. How Jesus Himself, God Himself, is coming in the flesh, incarnate. And He's coming in human form. So not only now is it words on paper or words on papyrus or spoken words of prophets, but now it is words of Jesus and God Himself is coming among us and has lived among us. So even though God spoke truth and He spoke power through the prophets of old, now it is changing. He is now speaking so more powerfully through His Son, Jesus. And how this older way of revealing, of God revealing Himself to the people was, was so expansive and effective for its time, but now God is bringing the ultimate means of communication in a way that is completely transformational. It's three-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. It's God in flesh in the person and work and words and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's more comprehensive than it's ever been. It's the living God among us, right in front of us. So these opening verses, they, they say so much about who Jesus is. He's the heir of all things. He's the one through whom the universe was made, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, the one who sustains all things, the one who purified our sins, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, the one who is greater than all the angels. It's just a remarkable opening description. I mean, you just look at those few lines and the, the depth and the weight of theology, of understanding of who Jesus is, is incredible. Just in those few words. Paul affirms this in similar fashion in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, speaking about Jesus. He says, There is one God the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things were created and through whom we live. And Paul also says in Philippians 2, 9-11, he says, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's like Paul is just worshiping this Jesus and declaring who He is, just like the author of Hebrews is doing as well. You know, God has some has sometimes said such powerful things to the church. 
And he's done so in such powerful ways, and now he's doing it in such a powerful way, the most powerful way imaginable, through the personal work of Jesus Christ, his Son. And you know, it's only the exalted Jesus who can make us pure from our sins. It's only the exalted Jesus that provides a way to draw near to God. It's only the exalted Jesus that can offer help in our time of need. It's only the exalted Jesus who can help us lose our fear of death and lead us through death to glory. It's only the exalted Jesus who who is fit for our worship and worthy of who we might follow. And so again, as we think about discipleship, it's so important that we have right thinking, right theology and understanding of who God is and who Jesus is in the world as it's critical to guide us into right living. Because without a deep theology or an understanding of who Jesus is, our discipleship simply becomes shallow and insipid expressions of Christianity. And so Hebrews 1 just gives us more than we even need for this. But let's just keep reading because it gets even better as we look at 4 to the end of the chapter. It goes on, it says, So he has... So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say? And so here the author is kind of giving a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But but, but about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I mean, the author just asks all these rhetorical questions. And he quotes these passages from the Old Testament that are passages that are God speaking and he makes this assumption. This is God now speaking, he says. And there's this talk of angels and this comparison to angels and Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, you see that. And first century people were really intrigued and had a keen awareness of angels. And the same, I would say, is true today and even throughout all ages. Even today as you look at TV shows and movies, there is such uh, infatuation with the supernatural and with supernatural powers and with angels and things of the spiritual world. And so the writer of Hebrews knew that even in that context, and I think throughout the ages, we're wired that way to understand that there is so much more beyond what we see in the physical world. And so we're intrigued by those other powers that are around there. And so the writer is comparing to angels and saying, no, 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 Jesus is very different. And he explains in this chapter that angels are merely ministering spirits between God and His people. And so he pulls forward these Old Testament quotations uh, where God is providing this clear picture of angels. And he points out that Jesus is not like the angels, but is so much more. Because Jesus knows what it's to be fully human and fully God. And then here's the remarkable thing that you can't miss in this text that we just read. 
is that here is God the Father speaking about Jesus the Son. And he's saying so clearly, this is who Jesus is. This is God the Father speaking about Jesus the Son. And he he says that over and over through these questions. And we know, as we read the Old Testament and New Testament, that throughout the Old New Testament, the only person that you worship is God Himself. Or it's idolatry. And yet here in this text, we see God the Father saying to the angels, this is My Son. You need to worship Him. It's a remarkable text that speaks so powerfully of God the Father saying, this is Jesus. This is the One you worship. And He's calling us to do the same. So again, I ask the question, what big questions do you bring to Jesus this fall? And I would encourage you to face them and to not dismiss them, but to press into them. And the most fundamental question that every single one of us can ask as we think about discipleship and as we desire to have clear answers and as we desire to follow Jesus is to know who we're following. And for every one of us to answer that question that Jesus asked His disciples that day, what about you? Who do you say that I am? I want to invite the worship team to come up and I would ask us to stand and I want to just conclude in a word of prayer. So Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for the richness of Your texts, the richness of this Word. But Lord, we thank You so much for the living Word in Jesus Christ. And so Lord Jesus, we worship You and we acknowledge we are so often like the disciples. We are so often ones who we miss what is right in front of us. And we miss who is right in front of us. We might look to You as a good moral teacher or somebody who is kind of an enhanced prophet, but these Scripture texts and so many more just remind us, no, You are so much more. And so Lord Jesus, we worship You. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into this fall and as we desire to follow You and know what it means to be a disciple, I pray that we would know unmistakably today who You are. And that we could answer that question with confidence and not have to worry about having all of our questions answered, but that this fundamental question is so clear and settled in our spirit that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We praise You. We give You thanks. Amen.